Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks so much for being here today, and happy holidays as we get close to that time. It's a great time of year. I just, to sit back, and we do this every year, you know, we kind of talk about how the year's gone. Obviously, at the end of the year, we will be doing our Best Of series, where we take clips from all of our favorite interviews and put them together in either one or two episodes. So if you're not subscribed, make sure you go subscribe now so that you don't miss that. They're usually our uh, most downloaded episodes. We got a great one for you today, I think, in the spirit of happiness and giving and all that. Uh, It's a great episode. It's also a subject that we get a lot of questions about. We get a lot of emails. I do as well because I've done career coaching, and you all know that both John and I have gone through a lot in trying to find our our careers, our callings, our path, whatever it may be. And so today we're interviewing Bill George, and specifically we are talking about his newly released expanded book called Discover Your True North. Now, the subtitle is Becoming an Authentic Leader, and I'm starting to realize the more of these interviews I do that they kind of put that on there because if they can put a business spin or title, you know, leadership, entrepreneurship, etc. on there, and it can go in the business section, then they're going to sell more books. 
But really, this is a self-help book. It is about discovering your true north. Who are you? What do you want to do? Uh, what does it mean to be successful? And yes, it has the slant towards the professional. Quick bio about Bill. He is a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School, where he's taught leadership since 2004. He's the author of four best-selling books, and he's the former chairman and chief executive officer of Medtronic, which is now a multi-billion dollar business. He's got a lot of great things going on. I know you guys sometimes tell me I spend too much time talking about the guests. Uh, in essence, though, it was fantastic to have him on. We talk about being a CEO at such a large company, by the way, and uh, also his writing, how to find your true north, all that good stuff. Going to get into the episode, Bill George here. All I ask, guys, two things. Uh, one, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes if you have a few minutes. But most importantly, this holiday season, as you're doing your shopping, if you want to support the show, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Again, that's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, and we get a little kickback, no cost to you. Thanks again so much for listening. Here it is, our interview with Bill George, as we discuss his book, Discover Your True North. All right, Bill. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. As I mentioned, as we were talking prior, this is a topic that uh, I'm extremely passionate about and the listeners know about. So can't wait to jump in and thank you again. Chris, thank you very much for inviting me here. You know, one of the ironic twists of, uh, in my life has been that all my life I wanted to be a leader. And I remember running for office seven times in high school and college and losing every time and being feeling a sense of rejection and uh, that I was not cut out to be a leader after all and not being elected to anything. And then finally, I, after a little self-help development, I was able to yeah, have many leadership opportunities in college and graduate school and in business throughout my career. And uh, I stepped aside at Medtronic uh, in my late 50s uh, after being CEO for 10 years, staying as board chair for another year because I felt CEOs are staying too long. So I left an organization of 30,000 people and went off on my wilderness experience in Switzerland to decide what am I going to do next. And one of the things I've learned uh, the last uh, 12, 13 years since I started teaching and writing is that I really have a passion to see other people do well in leadership role and to try to impact leadership, not through my own direct leadership, but through the indirect influence on other people, all the way from people just starting out their careers to CEOs. And uh, so I never thought uh, I would be in this role. Uh, I did learn one message from my mentor, Warren Bennis, who died a year and a half ago. Warren said uh, when he stepped aside at University of Cincinnati, he said, I learned what I didn't want was position power. What I really resonated with was personal power. And uh, I found there's a lot of gratification personally in seeing what, with great pleasure, what great work other leaders do and the impact they can have for good in the world. So that's why I wrote the book, Discover Your True North, and focused all my energies on trying to coach, teach, mentor, and, uh, and write for uh, a new generation of leaders that, frankly, I think is doing much better than my generation did. Wow, you don't hear that too often. You know, usually you hear people 
two things, either discuss their kind of generation with a certain level of, oh, I don't know, confidence and, and then uh, degrading those below them, or they just steer away from it for fear of stirring anything up. So what, what do you think it is about um, perhaps, you know, younger generations uh, that are really, that's helping them accomplish things and be great leaders? Chris, I got into this after I left Medtronic because I was frankly disappointed in what had happened to my generation. You saw the Enron, WorldCom uh, debacles of 12 years ago, Tyco, and about 200 companies that restated their earnings. Then you had the financial collapse in 2008 and 2009. And as I studied these leaders, which I had more time to do when I was teaching at Harvard Business School, what I learned was that uh, these people uh, who failed – took down great organizations, not because of things like subprime mortgages or poor governance, but because they put themselves ahead of their institution. It was a big ego trip, very charismatic leaders, uh, powerful leaders, but they weren't really committed to making a difference in the world through their efforts. That's always been what I want to do, but today's generation is really committed to that. There's far less focus on self-interest and much more focused on uh, making a mark through helping other people with great products, great ideas, great services, and all the things that today's leaders, including, by the way, the new generation of CEOs, Mm -hmm. are doing. I don't think they get the credit they deserve because the uh, financial collapse took a lot of the trust out of the the, uh, leadership balloon, if you will. Hmm. But I think they deserve the trust, and I think it's going to be amazing what a lot of these leaders do. You know, I love that take on it, and... I'm going to insert my own opinion here because it's something that I kind of feel strongly about given that I've always said um, once I figured out what I was doing, what was important to me, and that, that did take a while, five, seven years of you know post-graduation to, to figure it out. But You I got do- there faster than I did, Chris. <laughs> Man, that makes me feel good because it felt like an eternity, by the way. <laughs> and actually, I do I want to hear about your background. Um, but the, the one thing I was getting at is that I have always felt this need to, um, I don't want to necessarily call it give back, but to be more focused on the good that anything I do and what it could bring to the world. And I sometimes think about the fact that that I can only, I'm only afforded that thought process because of what perhaps my parents or their parents gave us, which was a safe environment, uh, enough food on the table, a shelter over our head where we didn't have to be as self dependent, I don't want to call it self-dependent, but just self-involved because we knew we had our basic needs met where earlier generations, you know, obviously industrial revolution and, and slightly thereafter, they really had to focus on first and foremost survival for the most part. You ever look at it that way? Am I on sure. point at all? Sounds like we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy a little bit. Right. Which uh, is very true. But I think what we're seeing now, Chris, is that uh, uh, just meeting or chasing uh, the external gratification of money, fame, and power mm-hmm. is not giving people the uh, satisfaction they'd hoped for. Mm-hmm. And many people that achieve wealth early on say, if I'm just chasing money, is that all there is? And yeah, that's all there is. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think people are looking for a lot more today, and uh, they realize that uh, in spite of the enormous wealth being created, it's not just about money. It's about leaving your mark on the world and, and having an impact. 
Well, and, and that's a great place to transition to this, which is a little bit about, I, I want to hear about your background because it is a, a very interesting background. And in that, you mentioned from early on, especially in college, you kind of wanted to be a leader. And I have to admit, I, I never had that aspiration. Leadership in general, I never felt that to be important or to make a mark or to whatever it is, I had to be a leader. I always just thought, if I work towards what I enjoy um, and, and a life that I enjoy, this was, I guess, a learning process, but the title or position doesn't matter. And I never fully understood the almost infatuation with leadership. And now on this show, I've, I've interviewed a, a number of people on the topic and, and I'll tell you about what I do now that has that kind of uh, made me change my mind a little bit, but I'd like to hear it from you. What drew you towards the idea of being a leader? What does that mean in your opinion? And how did you kind of fulfill that goal? Well, I have to go all the way back to when I was a, a little boy, eight, nine, ten years old, and my father, uh, I'm an only child and older. My father was 43 when I was born, and he actually, I thought he was a good consultant. He thought he was a failure because he'd never led anything. And uh, he wanted me to make up for all the things he didn't do and kind of put in my brain the idea, oh, I could be a leader of some big company, even mentioned companies like Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble and IBM, which in retrospect seems kind of absurd, but that's what he was doing. And so I had this in the back of my brain. You can see it was it kind of implanted in the DNA that I was going to be some kind of great leader. But uh, that's why the rejection process was so important for me recognizing that you can't just say you're a leader or want to be one. You really have to uh, find, you really have to empower other people. And I learned that very early on uh, in college. And uh, I've tried to do it all my life, recognizing that uh, all of us is a lot more effective than, uh, than any one of us. Uh, and that you, your, their job as a leader there is not to dominate people and to get them to do your bidding, but, or even to get them to follow you, to tell you the truth. It's really to inspire them to do great work. And the great leaders today are doing just that. They inspire other people to do great work. And that's why I'm so excited about this new generation. And that's what I try to write about in my new book, Discover Your True North, to give people an idea. You know, here's some great leaders we can all learn from. It's so interesting because one of the things I do right now, I, I work for Franklin Covey as a consultant and um, do some training around leadership and productivity and not to go too far into it, but one of the, the stances that we take is, and it's, I mean, it's a truth, is that the vast majority of the world, well, the vast majority of the country and about half the world are knowledge workers, right? And yes. that's what made me realize, that's what made me change my opinions on leadership because there are so many leaders now. The The, the structure of our economy is such that, you have people leading small teams, you have people leading large teams and larger and companies and organizations and groups because we're a knowledge economy as opposed to in the industrial age where it was really, you know, a few people at the top and tons of people just go do your job. And that's when it really struck me why it's important, this idea of leadership, as you said, to inspire others to do great work. Well, it sure is, and uh, I think particularly among the millennials and Gen Xers, they are not going to be uh, wanting to just do someone else's bidding or uh, stand in line for 10 years to get their opportunity. 
like many in my generation did. Mm -hmm. They want their opportunities now, and I think they deserve them. Somebody gave me a chance to be general manager of the uh, the brand-new Litton microwave cooking products business of Litton Industries. uh, It became the leading player in consumer microwave ovens and really opening up that market back in the early 70s. And what a great opportunity. And I was 27 years old, and one thing I learned is I better surround myself with people who know what they're doing. I went out and hired a... uh, senior VP of marketing uh, from the appliance industry that had tremendous knowledge and experience, had to pay him, not pay, willingly paid him twice as much as I was making, and he was twice my age. So uh, (laughs) the interesting turn of events, but you learn that way that you better depend on other people and not, as some people say, fake it to make it. Right. Absolutely. Well, one of the things I want to talk about, and then, so first I want to talk about your time at Medtronic a little bit, and then I really want to go a little deeper in your book, as you mentioned, Discover Your True North, because it's fascinating, and I I want to get some gems out of it so that people can really have some takeaways and then go purchase it, hopefully. Um, I'll be happy to do that. So, yeah, so first, though, you know, I have this infatuation with CEOs. I just, I, it's obvious at this point if people have listened to 200 plus episodes, um, because it's this title. I mean, so much of the world has an infatuation. That's why they're on all these magazines. Um, and, and my view of it is, is changing, obviously not necessarily in a good or bad way, but just as I get closer to folks that are in that position or have friends that are in that position or, um, myself come closer, I realize the differences, but you were the CEO of a, a massive company. And what what was the size of the company when you were there, Medtronic? Well, actually, it wasn't all that massive. I took over. In fact, I went from a massive company, Honeywell, uh, to uh, actually took about just a third of the size business uh, oh, that wow. uh, I was running at Honeywell. And frankly, I was not number one. I was number two. I was, chief, I was president, chief operating officer. But about the time, it was uh, $750 million when I joined. Now we are here today in 2015, 16, and the company is just right at $30 billion in sales. So it has grown quite a bit and gone from about 4,000 employees to over 80,000. Wow. So a, a big shift. So- uh, and uh, But you know, I think one of the challenges any company has is do you have the leaders at all levels that can propel your growth? You don't just need a lot of managers to follow suit. You need a lot of creative people because we've seen a lot of companies that grow, they lose their creativity, they lose their innovative spark, they lose their energy of what got them going. And at Medtronic, we were totally committed, everyone was, not just yours truly, to the mission of Medtronic to restore people to full life and health. Hmm. And Chris, I like to tell people the thing I'm proudest about from my uh, years of, 13 years at Medtronic was not the numbers, which were outstanding, what the uh, fact that we went from restoring uh, 300,000 people, new patients every year, to full life and health and fulfilling the mission, to by the time I left, that number had grown to 6 million, and today it's around 15 million. Wow. So uh, that's what really matters. Inevitably, when I go out and give a talk on my new book, Discover Your True North, I'll meet someone who has had one of our products, or their son has, or their father has, and it's very moving to me to see how much help we can give people to allow them to have full active lives. Well, let me ask you, because Medtronic is a medical device company, and we all, at least I can't say we all, but I have some friends in the industry. I know that um, it's a great industry to be in. It's lucrative. The devices can be extremely expensive. 
at what point or, or how as a CEO, how do you balance the mission versus the, you know, if you're a publicly traded company, the duty to provide shareholder return in that, you know, you're directly providing these services to people at, at, at a cost and, and in healthcare, a cost that's rapidly increasing. So did you ever find it difficult to balance, you know, shareholder responsibility versus the responsibility of the organization and the mission to helping people? All the time. Okay. And I think it's not just in the United States where all our devices were almost 100% reimbursed uh, by either Medicare or Medicaid or by insurance companies, but uh, around the world where the economics weren't as favorable to people. The reality is, you know, you can't give your products away. We're not a charity. And frankly, you have to earn enough profit to fuel R&D. And if you don't do that, you're on a steady course of going out of business. So we put a minimum of 10% uh, of our profits into R&D without fail. Uh, not our profits, of our revenues into R&D without fail. And we maintained that level for a very long time. And we always wanted to see like 1% to 2% of that revenues always go into radical breakthrough ideas that we had no idea would become successful or not. And that became a, a very essential way of running the business. And uh, But we had what we call differential pricing, so you would charge quite different prices in, say, Africa or Asia than you might in, uh, in Japan or Germany or the United States. Uh, but I felt like we delivered extremely good value, and we had to test that against the value. Was it really worthwhile? Okay, a pacemaker costs $7,000. That's a lot of money, but you don't have to trade drugs the rest of your life. Same with a defibrillator. Uh, and so it may save other procedures. You may have two stents in your heart, but that may save a $30,000, $40,000 open heart procedure, which is much more difficult for the patient to absorb. So I think you always have to put the economic test against that. And more and more today, we have to justify it to the health plans and the hospital groups that we're working with as well as the, uh, uh, frankly, with the uh, the government folks. Right. And do you feel that because, you know, I'm sure in this industry you knew a lot of other folks in similar positions at other companies, right? So a lot of the leaders in the field of uh, medical devices, medical technology, really health in general, because from the outsider perspective, oftentimes, and as you mentioned, with the collapse, you know, of, um, you know, the, the financial markets, people started losing trust in leaders and looking at things like revenue or profit and and uh, pay specifically, right, See executive pay and going, yeah, this all sounds good, but look at the gap in, in pay and all that. I mean... You obviously, from the book to your background to what we're talking about, it seems like really walk the walk, tried to balance those things. Do you feel like most people do or do you, and are getting maybe a bad rep at the top CEOs in specifically in industries like healthcare? Um, do you think they're getting a bad rep or do you think it's justified that there isn't a lot of great leadership going on up there? To be honest, the mainstream people I know running the large companies really are trying to do the right thing. The main pharmaceutical companies, medical technology companies are, and investing for the long term. What we've seen, though, is this incredible rise of uh, shareholder power, shareholder democracy, the activists, investors, Chris, that they're only interested in short term. And they want to make a quick hit and move on. I used to say, you know, 
you can sell the stock any time, but we've got to run the company. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of these people are just looking to invest now to get a, a few quarters of stock pop and then move on. And uh, this has been very debilitating. And there are now uh, companies like Valiant that are actively promoting the idea that you don't need to spend money in R&D. You can get less, buy with less than 3% uh, R&D and pay less than 3% on taxes. And that sounds appealing on the surface, but it's very uh, damaging if you pursue that and could really destroy the, uh, the competitiveness of America globally. We're going through a situation right now where uh, DuPont's uh, research labs are under attack. Uh, they only account for seven-tenths of one percent of revenues, but uh, they're probably going to be shut down as a result of its uh, pressure from activists to merge with Dow. Uh, so I, I'm very concerned about these issues. Yeah, and especially I can imagine when you, again, in your role as leadership here, you're dealing directly. Are you the main mouthpiece to investors as the CEO? Well, you and your CFO and investor relations head, but okay. they certainly listen to what you say. Yes, you're, right. the, you're the keeper of the keys when it comes to strategy as well. Okay, and and that is how how do you deal with the because I love what you just mentioned, kind of people looking for stock pops, and is that again, most of us don't know this world. Is that um, the majority of investors? That, I mean, they're doing it essentially for a return. And so when they're talking to you, they're just pressuring for only financial gains. And in an industry such as healthcare that is so personal and so literally life or death, I wonder how you maintain that, that balance as the CEO. What were you telling them? Were you trying to explain the mission at all? Like, How does that work? I'd love to be a fly on the wall in one of those conversations. Well, Chris, there's a pretty wide range of investors out there. Okay. There are obviously very long-term funds uh, and index funds like Vanguard, BlackRock, and uh, uh, some of the actively managed funds like Capital Group that have a very long-term point of view. And they recognize that over the last 10, 20 years that all of the great gains have come from long-term investments, not short. Uh, investing in a Google, uh, a Microsoft, an Intel, a Medtronic, if you will, uh, these have resulted in staggering gains for people. But uh, there is this class of very short-term oriented investors, traders, if you will. They're not really investing companies. They're just trading stocks. And they're now led by the activist investors who take down big positions and pressure companies for short-term positions. Cut back R&D, cut ca back capital, give to, uh, you know, divide the company in three, uh, or give uh, you know more money back to the shareholders in terms of uh, 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 stock buybacks, which appears to be more money to them. And that's the big concern. And this conflict now is putting enormous pressure on CEOs. And my whole approach is to try to get these CEOs to have spine in their <laughs> steel in their spine to stand up to it. Someone like Indonui PepsiCo faced a terrible assault from Nelson Peltz at made all kinds of accusations on PepsiCo, wanted to break the company up, manipulated, and she stood in the face of that, and her board backed her, and now that's uh, moved on. And uh, the company has performed exceptionally well the last four years, five years. Today's episode is sponsored by the creative pioneers over at Creative Live. Creative Live helps people unlock their creative potential. Their online brain trust is a great place to rekindle your artistic spark or dig into new skills like photography, design, crafting, music production, and business savvy. 
You can watch classes in their massive online catalog or come attend live and learn from the best. Experts like Tim Ferriss, Ann Geddes, and Alex Bloomberg will show you how to bring your A-game to whatever revs your engines. Go to creativelive.com slash smart people for 20% off any of Creative Live's classes. That's creativelive.com slash smart people. Thrill yourself. Join a scrappy community of creators today. And now back to the episode. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate going down that road with me. It's you have, as I mentioned, an interesting background. And now I want to I want to talk about um, discover your true north and get back into you know. So one of the, my favorite terms, words, things that you use is authentic leadership. Mm-hmm. The word authentic. It is. I think. If somebody asked me, what is one word you want used to describe you, you know, uh, put on your gravestone? For me, it's going to be authentic. Um, Absolutely. Yes. That is. And and that's how I've always lived my life. So tell me why um, this word, this type of leadership, authentic leadership, is the most crucial, especially now. Well, because today people are looking for the real thing. They're looking for something authentic. They don't want to fake. There have been authors in the past that have written theories about you have to fake it to make it. I'll tell you, you can't. That's a sure way of making sure you won't make it if you try to fake it. Because today, particularly millennials, have a very, very good sniff test to know who's authentic and who's not. You yourself know, Chris, who's real and who's not. The first 60 seconds when you meet them, you can tell a phony a mile away. Oh, yeah. And in the past, people would put up with this, the so-called jerks uh, in powerful position. Today, they won't. They just say, I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else where I can be nourished and I can pursue my own dreams and hopes. And uh, they're not going to put up with it. So it's a totally flawed strategy to think you can have uh, uh, people who are, you know, faking it or pretending um, imposters, as we talk about, discover you to north in, in leadership roles. You have to be real. And if, look, if you don't know everything, none of us knows everything. So we got to get stronger so people can help us. What's wrong with that? To mm-hmm. me, all great leadership is characterized by team at the top. <clears throat> it's not one person. It's uh, you know Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Eric Schmidt out of Google or Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg at uh, Facebook. I mean, or back in the old days, uh, Gordon Moore and Andy Grove and Bob Noyce at Intel. They're the ones that created great companies. It wasn't one person at the top. I certainly did it in Medtronic. I had an outstanding chief operating officer in Art Collins who became my successor and in Vice Chairman Glenn Nelson. And they were awesome. The three of us worked as a team. Each of us had our own respective roles. And thank you for that. You know, one of the things that keeps striking me, and I want people to know, because is that, you know, this book could be, it could sit under the self-help category. And it could not even... If you want to transition it a little bit, it could not even really contain the word leadership, and that would be a uh, just an output. We're really, and and please correct me if I'm wrong. It's just how I kind of interpret it going through it. You know, first and foremost, it's about who you are, figuring that out in order to even move to the point where others want to follow you. Absolutely, I think the hardest person, Chris, you're ever going to have to lead is yourself. Mm. And uh, people don't quite get that. They think about leading others, but uh, until you lead yourself, and that means not just being a smart person, but having a high level of emotional intelligence, uh, having self-awareness, knowing who you are, 
being able to establish authentic relationships with other people, understanding your impact on other people, and, and knowing how to read a room when you're giving a talk or reading people one-on-one. Uh, that's all part of having a high level of emotional intelligence. And frankly, having passion for the business, having compassion for the customers you're serving, having empathy for the employees you work with, and having the courage to make big decisions. And if you think about qualities like passion, compassion, courage, these are all matters of the heart. And I think great leaders today have to combine a good brain, if you will, the the rational side, the analytical side, with qualities of the heart. And uh, my colleague, Michael Porter at Harvard Business School says, uh, unless you're a good human being, you can't be a great leader. And I think that's really true. In the past, we thought we'd be great leaders and miserable human beings. I think that's all changed. Today, you have to combine the head and the heart and bring that into your decisions. And that's how you become great leaders. When this podcast started out, a specific focus was on really finding oneself. That's why we started it. It was based on, I don't feel like I know enough about the world. I'm going to talk to as many successful people as possible and try to find my path. And um, through that, we have built an audience that many feel the same way or have felt the same way. I get emails all the time, you know, uh, hey, I don't know if I'm in the right field. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. And I think you offer this in this book. You kind of talk about it. I mean, the idea of a true north being a compass. And so you have to find the center of your compass. You have to cultivate that self-awareness. How, what are some actionable steps? What You know, for people who are going... You know, maybe maybe you're just out of school or maybe you're not, right? You've been in an industry and you've been defined that way. How do you first set the foundation of even who you are? Well, I think it goes into your life story. Who are you and really processing your life story and looking at the events of your life and who are the people that have influenced you? What are the events that shaped you as a human being? How do you see your place in this world? Does your life matter? Who are you? And that takes a lot of work. And I think oftentimes we see people, when they go through and really process their life stories, they go through a process of reframing it and seeing themselves not as victims, but as overcomers. Uh, Rather than live your life as an angry person because you didn't have all the financial benefits or you you had health issues or whatever it was, rather than seeing yourself as a victim, you can see yourself as someone, hey, I was able to uh, accomplish all these things uh, and overcome some things. And most of us have really severe crucibles at one point in time in our life. Some are very dramatic. Some are less dramatic. It's not how important they're dramatic they are, but they really influence us. And as we get in touch with that, we can see the power in that. Instead of being a victim, instead of ignoring these things, we can actually venerate them and look at our life like I become out of that those difficult times. There's the oyster in the pearl or there's the there's the pearl in the oyster. There's that beautiful pearl of my life, and that's what I'm becoming. And that helped make me, because I went through these challenging times, I know I can take on these things and be successful. I really want to highlight that point. I, I And I love the term crucibles, actually. I, I might utilize that going forward. Go ahead. Um, There's nothing, nothing proprietary about it. <laughs> I, I don't remember who told me this. I'm pretty sure it was on an interview somewhere. Um, maybe it was in a book I read. But... It was this idea that, you know, whoever I was listening to was saying, I almost feel bad for people who don't have enough powerful, and we'll call them crucibles, because 
you're not, there's not a shock that forces you out of the comfort that we so desperately seek as humans. And for me, that was incredibly true. I always laugh when I was going through tough times with anxiety and, and, and much more than that, um, that I've talked about before, I don't need to get into is, you know, I always almost laughed at people who said, Oh, you'll look back on, on difficulties and, say you're glad that they happen. And I was like, these are awful. I know I, I won't. <laughs> Didn't feel that way. No. And, and, and up until very recently, I still was like, no, I, I disagree with that. But if that didn't happen, my only goal back then was make money. I'd still be working in finance. I, all I know is I'd be dead inside to some degree. And so these crucibles are important to force you to reevaluate. And I think from my experience and not to be the one kind of preaching here, but this is what you talk about, you know, in order to make change, you need to look at those as opportunities to figure out what didn't work and then simply try something new, different and better. Just try it. And I think that leads to kind of the second part you talk about is developing as an authentic leader. You know, you have this self-awareness. Perhaps you now are defining your values. And so I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about how how do values play a role? Because for me, they're crucial. Um, and how do you define them for yourself? Well, values are critical, just like you say. And I think no one can tell you what your values are. You have to ascertain your own values. And that's part of finding discovering your true north. It's probably discovering your true north you have to process. One of the things at the deepest level I really believe what are my core values, and what are the principles I lead by? And that's the essence of discovering your true north, as I write about in the new book, and that comes out of your life story and your crucibles. Uh, and then you have to practice your values every day. And there's no school solution here. Uh, there's not just having a list of values. You actually have to go into situations where your values are tested under pressure, and you find out how you're going to respond. Or you have two conflicting values, like loyalty and integrity. And all of a sudden, you find out the person you're loyal to is uh, not an honest person. Uh, you're going to hold up your integrity first, or are you going to focus on your loyalty to that person? And so you get into these conflict situations. We ask people in the classroom and in the book to actively you know, discuss these and think about those trade-offs and the conflicts you feel, and how do you stay true to who you are when you were tempted you could make a lot more money, get a big bonus of doing it. You just had to uh, jigger the economy around a little bit. <laughs> Many people do. And uh, they never get back or just cheat a little bit. And I think uh, you, you learn that uh, you can spend 30 years building up trust and being a person of integrity, and you can lose it all in about 30 minutes. While we're on that topic, because this is one, first of all, I want to highlight for folks that uh, your book is fantastic. And don't take my word for it, but on Amazon, it has something like, I don't know, I can't remember, I could have pulled it up, but 70 or 80, just uh, south of 100 reviews, and the vast majority are four or five stars. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is how well you integrate others' stories. And you do talk about people who have made these bad choices and what it did to them. Which ones, as we talk, talk about kind of what you included in your book, are there any that jump out to you or is there one particular that you just say, guys, look, here's an example of why you need to live your values every day? Well, for sure. Uh, 
I remember my friend David Gergen, who is now often seen on CNN as a major commentator, probably the best political commentator on TV, and he works, uh, teaches over at Harvard and runs Center for Public Leadership, talks about uh, he was in the Nixon White House, and uh, he got caught up in the game that uh, guys like Haldeman and Ehrlichman were playing. And, uh, you know, he got too caught up in the celebrity, and he said uh, then it all came crashing down when Nixon resigned. He thought his career was over. Uh, another person who worked with him is a man named John Huntsman. We talked about extensively. John created Huntsman Chemical. But John was asked to do something highly unethical uh, by Bob Haldeman in the White House, and he started to do it and uh, uh, to try to create a trap for some congressman. And then he caught a hold of himself, and he said, wow, all of a sudden my inner moral compass kicked in, and I realized I was on the wrong track. Hmm. And uh, he came back from that, and, uh, you know, it was a real values test for John. And, uh, and then another later in his life, he was facing bankruptcy, and he said, look, I can't declare bankruptcy. My integrity as a man is on the line for having the ability to deliver or to carry out what I believe in pay back my investors. And he did, to his credit. So I really admire leaders like that, that uh, are true to what they believe. How much do you think also for leaders goes to the ability to uh, bounce back? Because, you know, to stick to those guns, you're going to suffer setbacks in the interim, right? You're, you're not necessarily taking the easiest way. So kind of resilience as a trait um, did you, you know, does any of your research or experience kind of um, go into that? Absolutely. I mean, resilience is a key factor today. And how do you bounce back? But I think it's part of it is processing the setbacks you've had and uh, then having a good sense of yourself so that you're going through tough times and you can separate yourself from the outcomes. I am not my numbers. You know, I am who I am. And you can bear up under difficult times and have that resilience because we're all going to face them. No one's going to get through a career without our life, certainly, without facing difficult times. And I think preparation early on of understanding that enables you to be strong in the face of it and come back when you face difficult times. I'm amazed at the resilience of some of our leaders have today. Uh, very powerful because they can keep coming back because they – they believe so strongly in the mission. You just can't beat them down. And that's kind of in a nutshell when you're talking about the true north, right? If you know what that is, yep. then, you know, even if you get, I mean, literally take the idea of walking through a forest, not knowing where you're going, you're following north, you get knocked down, you get the snowstorm, whatever, you just pull it back up and you can find the direction in which to go. And I love what you said there about processing the setbacks we've had. One thing that has jumped out to me that I've heard in the past is, you know, the self-talk we generate for internally is so much more cruel than anything we would ever say to anyone else. And that's not fair. You know, if we have a failure or a setback, think about how you're processing it, right? Oh, I got fired because I'm not worthy because of that, 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 that. And that's not helpful. What would you tell a friend in the same situation? It would be incredibly different, much more motivating, and lead to better results. So I think when you're processing those setbacks, there's a lot of importance on how you do that. Yeah, you really understand this well, Chris. You're right <laughs> on the money. Is uh, you uh, you know you have we have these setbacks, and our self talk is really really difficult. We have 
everyone has what we call dueling narratives. It's the positive narrative, you know, I can overcome this and I can achieve great things. Howard Schultz, uh, uh, write about in the first chapter of the book, he had a big dream. He wanted to create a company that his father would be proud to work with because he saw his old man lose 30 jobs, as he said, 30 rotten jobs. He never had a chance. And he wanted to create a company that provided health care for its all employees and Starbucks stock and provided them a real opportunity. Didn't pay minimum wage. And uh, But, you know, Howard also has this fear of failure because he saw his father fail. One of the reasons he went back into Starbucks six, seven years ago was because he was afraid that it was going to fail. And so he felt, I've got to get back in there and do everything I can to keep this place on track and bring it back to its original roots. Even though we're going to have 20,000 stores around the world, it has to be true to its roots, and we have to treat people the right way. And he did come back, and I tell you, the results since he came back have been spectacular. But he would tell you today, if we were sitting here, I'm still wrestling with that fear of failure, <laughs> just like I'm wrestling with that fear of rejection. Every time I walk into a classroom with a group of 27-year-olds, afraid they're going to reject me. It's not a rational thought. And yes, I beat up myself much more. I'd never tell a colleague who was also learning how to teach, you know, oh, you got to worry about rejection. You never say it to more. You've just been rejected. Right. No, you don't talk. So you're right. Uh, we're much harder on ourselves. But I think that's the processing and gaining that sense of well-being and also having group people around you who will support you through difficult times. That's why you need a support group. If you don't have a support team, you're putting yourself very much at risk. So um, I know we're, we're coming up on time here. Uh, the last thing that I want to ask you in this regard is for those who perhaps go, okay, you know, I understand this. I do need to, you know, discover my true north. I'm in... I'm in a, a bind, a quandary of some sort. I, I don't feel like I'm going where I want to go. What's the, let's start with just, and we may have covered it a little bit, but I want to hear it kind of from you. What's the first step? Say, hey guys, when you turn this off, go do this and start your journey. Write down your life story and what's really important in your life. Who's influenced you? Who are the factors? Who are the people? What are the events have influenced you? And how do you see yourself in that? And then take and talk it over with a, a loved one, a friend, a significant other, a mentor, a coach, or, or a therapist if you have one. But talk to someone about it and uh, get out there and do that. Just dig in. And in the book and every chapter, we have a series of exercises that encourage precisely things like this. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it starts. Who am I in this world? I'll never forget my wife had breast cancer 19 years ago. And her question wasn't, you know, is the cancer going to come back? It was, does my life matter? Where am I in this world? I'm one wow. of 7 billion, billion people. And she used that experience with cancer as difficult as the chemotherapy and the hormonal treatments and the mastectomy were to transform her life. And now she's going uh, really strong uh, as a result wow. uh, because of it. And she's now trying to change healthcare to look at the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. And I really admire what she's done. That's incredible. And, and thank you for that. I think that's fantastic advice. Well, Bill, again, thank you so much. The book is Discover Your True North, Becoming an Authentic Leader. And we will link to that on smartpeoplepodcast.com. Is there anywhere else that uh, you would recommend people go? Do you, do you write elsewhere? You know, anything that uh, for folks that are saying, wow, this is great. I, I want to learn more. or I want to read about Bill, um, where they can go. Sure. I've got uh, two websites. I'm writing a lot of articles these days. I'm so passionate about influencing leadership. 
So they're all cataloged and all on the homepage at billgeorge.org and also the book website, discoveryourtunorth.org. And uh, you can pick them up on LinkedIn, on Huffington Post. I'm going to start a new column for Fortune later this month uh, and at Britain for Forbes, Harvard Business School, Working Knowledge, Harvard Business Review. So lots of places. Just scroll in Bill George and I think you can pick up a, a lot of these things. That's and, fantastic. Uh, I'd love with any of your listeners also like to stay in touch uh, on my Twitter site or uh, on Facebook. Yeah, what, what is your, uh, we'll link to it, but f- if you could tell people, do you know off the top of your head what your Twitter handle is? Yeah, it's just at Bill underline George. Okay, Bill underscore George. Perfect. Bill, thank you again so much. This was fantastic. I appreciate that. You're a great interviewer. Thank Th- you. Chris. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Love the conversational style, so thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Have a fantastic day. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Bill George. His book, Discover Your True North, can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And if you do purchase through Amazon, please do not forget to use our Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through the link comes to no cost to you, gives us a nice little kickback from Amazon, and truly does help support the show. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating, review, comment over there. Don't forget that you can find all things Smart People Podcast at www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can send us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. The end of the year is closely approaching, so that means our best of 2015 episodes are coming up. So stay tuned for those, and we will see you all next week. Today's episode was sponsored by the Creative Pros over at Creative Live. Watch classes and learn from the best. Experts like Tim Ferriss, Ann Geddes, and Alex Bloomberg will show you how to bring your A-game to whatever revs your engines. Go to creativelive.com slash smart people for 20% off any of Creative Live's classes. That's creativelive.com slash smart people. Thrill yourself. Join a vibrant community of creators today.